Right. Well, man, this is kind of surreal being here with you guys and, and preaching here at Fullness. Um, my parents, Paul and Lucy Hughes, brought us to Fullness uh, 18 years ago in the year 2000, and I was 13 years old at the time, and uh, Fullness was really the church that I was in during some very formative years of my life, of middle school, high school, college, um, and God so used the ministry of this church um, and, and Pastor Bart and the Fullness Youth Group just to shape me as the disciple of Christ that I'm seeking to be. Um, in fact, it was actually here that I received my calling to preach. Uh, when I was 16, um, there was a, a season in which the Lord began just giving me this vision of me preaching uh, a sermon to the Fullness Youth Group. And... Um, and I would, I would go to bed at night seeing myself preaching this sermon to them. And it was a sermon on uh, what is your legacy going to be? At the end of your life, what is the anthem of your life going to be? Um, and I would go to bed seeing myself preaching the sermon to them. I'd wake up seeing myself preaching it to them. This happened for three months. And so after a while, I was like, God, are you calling me to be a preacher? And one night... At youth, after several months of this, I said, okay, Lord, if you're calling me to be a preacher, then have my youth pastor preach my sermon tonight. And that night, Shane Simmons preached my sermon that God had given me for three months. Um, in 2010, God led uh, a group of us to plant a church called Hope Culture, and in um, the beautiful sovereignty of God, he's led us back to our home church in the very place that he first called me to be a preacher. So this is this is awesome. I gotta say, it has been really wonderful to see how many of y'all are still here. Because um, we left in 2010, and, and how many of you guys have been here for decades now, uh, for 10, 15, 20, even 25 years? Um, what, a, what a testament to the health of this church and the leadership of Pastor Bart and the elders. Um, so it's been, um, it's been really fun getting to reconnect with some of you. Uh, to the rest of you, I, I may be best known as the guy who took a pie to the face for the bake-off, um, but we'll, we'll get to know each other, and I'm excited to be here. Um, I've, I've got a beautiful wife named Jordan, and we've been married uh, eight years in January, and we've got an eight-month-old named Adeline. Um, of course, Adeline goes by different names around our house, like Bunny, Bun Bun, Muffin Face, and um, She's awesome. So as we jump in today, we're doing big little letters this, this summer. I'm excited uh, to see what God has for us. When, when 2 Thessalonians fell to me, I have to be honest, I thought, okay, because um, there's two themes in 2 Thessalonians, really. One is uh, idleness and uh, having a good work ethic, and the other one is the man of lawlessness, otherwise known as the Antichrist. So I thought, all right, so I'm either going to be known as the guy who, like, on my first sermon rebuked everyone for being lazy or is, like, obsessed with the Antichrist. And, like, that's, that's okay, we got you ped, Gabe. That's, that's the preacher you are. Couldn't wait to hit us with your Antichrist sermon out the gate. Um, so let's, let's, let's jump in. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, and I've got the clicker. All right. Yes. Okay. So we'll, we'll read the first two verses. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So 
Um, oops, sorry. We'll leave that up just for a sec. So Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Thessalonica, and Pastor Bart gave a phenomenal uh, backdrop last week of the, the planting of the church in Thessalonica, and so I'm going to uh, refer uh, the, the historical backdrop to last week's sermon for those of y'all who missed it. Um, and one of the things that Pastor Bart talked about is how people are quitting their jobs because they think Jesus is coming back right away, and, um, and they're being lazy because of that. And uh, they also think, some of them think that Jesus has already come. Um, there's this, this sense in which uh, there's a teaching that's gone around that Jesus has already come in some way. Um, so when, when my wife Jordan was a little girl, uh, if there was ever a Saturday morning that, that she woke up and the house was a little too quiet, her brother's cartoons were on, but they weren't in the living room, and there was food on the stove, but no one was in the kitchen, a wave of panic came over her because she thought, what happened? The rapture! Yes! Um, she thought the rapture had happened. Then she'd see maybe her parents working in the garden outside, and then suddenly this wave of relief would come over her. Um, I gotta say, there's, pro- there's probably like scores of uh, millennials still healing from childhood rapture paranoia. Um, there needs to be like a call line dedicated to, you know, these poor souls. Thank you, Tim LaHaye and Kirk Cameron. And more recently, Nicolas Cage with the 2014 Left Behind remake. Um, so the context of Second Thessalonians isn't that they think they've missed the rapture. The context is that in some sense there's, they, um, there's been this teaching, this false teaching that's gone around some of the churches that Paul's been ministering to that Jesus isn't going to return bodily, that he came back in some kind of spiritual way and that uh, we're not anticipating a bodily resurrection from the dead when Christ returns. We've already experienced the spiritual resurrection, right, from being dead in our sins and raised to newness of life in Christ, and there isn't going to be a bodily resurrection that we're supposed to be waiting for. Um, And so Paul gives them this list of some things that will occur before the return of Christ, uh, which Paul says will be bodily, um, and the gathering to him speaks of the resurrection that Paul talked about in chapter 4 of this first letter. And so in this, we read about the mysterious man of lawlessness. I'm actually not going to spend a ton of time unpacking this passage, but I wanted to read it to you guys just so that you get a sense of uh, the feel of the letter as a people waiting for the return of Christ. So, um, so Paul goes on and says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and with all power and signs and false wonders. Um, And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion 
so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So some of you may be reading the signs of Christ's return in, in the Bible and, make, and you know, making parallels to current events happening in our day. Um, I, I did that myself over the years. I, I fully understand that, that mindset. Um, I used to be convinced that Jesus was coming back in my day. I'm not convinced now, but I do hope he will. I want God to intervene in an every eye will see him kind of way. I want the Garden of Eden on earth again, as Revelation 22 says we'll have in the age to come. Um, I want that. And if you are someone who's reading the signs of the time and making uh, connections to current events, and, and you believe that uh, your interpretation of the end times is that this will all take place in our own lifetimes, you've got to be uh, faithful to what you believe God is, is giving you. Um, as a man and, or woman who's looking for the return of Christ in, in your own day. Um, we should all be doing that. Um, but if I can, I just want to share some of my thoughts on this as a people waiting for the return of Christ. Um, I, I've studied the end times somewhat extensively. I preached on it regularly years ago. I've led three end time Bible studies. I've read books on the end times from theologians and scholars and pastors and popular Christian writers and friends, and even family. My dad has a, has a book on the end times, and it's excellent. And one of the things that I've, I've encountered and, and, and experienced in reading and, and in hearing people preach on it and in conversing with people about it is just how easy it is to take a handful of passages from Isaiah or Ezekiel or Revelation or 2 Thessalonians and make connections to current events happening right now in our world. And I don't mean that in a belittling way. I really don't. Um, but it's so easy. It's actually never been difficult. That's why Christians do it every generation. <laughs> um, so we did it a lot in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s when it wasn't difficult to make end-time Bible connections to the establishment of Israel and the spread of communism. It wasn't uh, hard in the 40s. Christians did it a lot when it was easy to make in-time Bible connections to the rise of Hitler and Nazi fascism. Uh, Christians did it in the Reformation era when it seemed like the Bible passages about the beast of Revelation and Babylon seemed to fit perfectly with Roman Catholicism and the papacy. Uh, Christians did it in the Middle Ages. Clearly, Islam is the beast of Revelation, making war against the saints and conquering Christian nation after Christian nation. And who's the false prophet from the book of Revelation? The false prophet's Muhammad. Duh. Right? I mean, if you're a Christian living in 900 AD, how else would you interpret the book of Revelation? And Christians did it under the Roman Empire, which was persecuting the church. Peter ends his first uh, letter uh, identifying Rome as Babylon. All scholars agree that when he says, we in Babylon greet you, by that time in Peter's life, he's already in Rome, where he's going to be killed. And nearly every Christian writer in the first several centuries of the church viewed Rome as the Babylon that we read about in Revelation and the beast that we read about. Um, and so I got to say this, though. There's truth to all of that. There's truth to all of that. Because the spirit of the beast of Revelation or the Antichrist, is already in the first century world, according to 1 John chapter 2. The Antichrist is here. 
Or in this passage, Paul says, yeah, the, the man of lawlessness is coming, but the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, verse 7. Meaning that basically the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world uh, producing Antichrist figures and ideas, inciting people to refuse to love the truth and so be saved, verse 10. That's what's always been happening. So why is it so easy to connect uh, Old Testament prophecies with passages like this one and speculate about how the plagues of Revelation could take place in our societies with whatever the current technologies may be? Um, why is it so easy to do that with regardless of what generation you live in? Because the world is hopelessly predictable. In our fallen human condition, humanity does the same things every generation, just a slightly different. Genocide is what Babylon has done. It's what Babylon is doing. The victimizing of the poor and the marginalized is what Babylon has done. It's what it's doing. The persecution of the church is what Babylon has done, and it's what Babylon is doing. Give us a little bit of power, and we will resurrect Babylon with every consecutive generation. And we do. So the Old Testament prophets, I love this, they responded with the heart of God to Babylon's world. And they did this in the 8th century when Assyria conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, and they did this in the 6th century B.C. when literal Babylon came and conquered Judah. And that's the context they're writing in. But the reason that it's so easy to parallel their prophecies with whatever the oppression the current generation may be experiencing is because the prophets are describing humanity's fallen condition and God's response to the Babylon that humanity so desperately clings to. And so what the prophets did in the midst of the chaos of their own day, is they spoke of a time when God would swallow up death forever, when people would turn their swords into plowshares, when a child isn't going to die after a few days, when you can build a house without fear that someone's going to take it from you. Children are going to play safely by viper holes. And, and most importantly of all, a new creation in which God is the center of it all and worshiped by all. We'll receive that, that great vision of Isaiah that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. N.T. Wright asked the question, how do the waters cover the sea? Answer, they are the sea. In the age to come, we are going to swim in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Or as in the words of this passage in verse 15, we've been saved so that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, his future glory, his return. So then how do we live in this world as a people that are waiting for the return of Christ in the midst of the Antichrist spirit that's so prevalent in our world? Um, well, 2 Thessalonians really speaks to that, and particularly in the verses that are following the ones that we just read. Um, so let's look at verse 13. Get this drink of water real quick. So these are the verses following, immediately following Paul's discussion of the return of Christ, the man of lawlessness. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved 
through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So if I can real quick, notice the, the Trinitarian activity in this verse. God the Father is choosing you for himself. You're the beloved of the Lord. When Paul talks about the Lord in his letters, he's talking about Jesus. So the Father's chosen you. Jesus loves you. And the Spirit sets you apart. Sanctification in this context, does not it's not speaking about the process, the lifelong journey of being conformed in the image of Christ. That's, of course, talked about in Paul's letters. But here, it's talking about how the Holy Spirit has set you apart for salvation. For salvation. So then how are we saved? We're saved as God chooses us. The love of Christ is our portion. The Spirit sets us apart. And through belief in the truth, Paul says, right? Belief in the truth. So the phrase, many are going to say, the phrase belief in the truth is one of the most outdated, narrow-minded phrases left in the English language. Because belief in the truth implies that there's this body of truth out there in the world, which is a pretty audacious claim. And not only does Paul believe that there's a body of truth out there in the world, but he says that it needs to be believed in order to receive something called salvation. So not only do we Christians claim that there's this body of truth out there in the world, but we also claim that people in the world are not okay. They need to be saved. They need to be saved by being set apart by the Holy Spirit for salvation and through belief in the truth, the gospel. Um, basically, there's this body of truth in the world, and, you've, and everyone else in the world is not okay, and if you believe this truth that we have, you'll be okay. Gabriel, do you even realize how tribalistic that sounds? Actually, I do. And maybe Paul did too. Maybe not, I don't know. But regardless, all I can say in response is, but have you met him? Because I've met him. Jesus is the reason I'm a Christian, period. His pursuit of me, that's my argument. And the more I come to meet Jesus, the more I come to know that I'm a great sinner and he's a greater savior. Verse 14 says, to this, that's this salvation, to this salvation he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tim Keller once said this of the gospel. Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared to believe. You're more loved than you ever dared to hope. This spring I had a coffee with a, a UAB student who's, at, who's a part of the Secular Humanist Club on campus. I don't believe in sin, he told me. Now this guy believes in morality. He believes that there's a such thing as right and wrong. Um, mostly centered around an ethic of fairness and the alleviation of human suffering. And within that framework, he would say, certain things are morally wrong. But that's not to say that certain things are sinful. Because sin implies a breach of a higher law given to humanity or to a tribe of people by a god or the gods or some higher spiritual order. What we need, he said, is an ethic that promotes fairness and human flourishing as we move into the 21st century in the next era of human civilization. Let me say this. I, I totally get the secular humanist ethic. 
It makes perfect sense to me. And I gotta be honest, I prefer it to the forms of atheism that say there's no such thing as right or wrong. Um, to be honest, like, <laughs> the thought of, of living in a world full of people who believe there's no such thing as right or wrong is kind of terrifying. Um, but when I look at my misconduct with the help of the Holy Spirit, I know that it's not simply wrong behavior, as if I'm some unruly child that's acting out, but with better education and more resources would otherwise be an angel. Because the Holy Spirit helps me name my wrongdoing. It's called sin. The Holy Spirit helps me name that force in the world that promotes darkness. It's called evil. And the Holy Spirit helps me locate where it resides in me and in you. Therefore, what I need, ultimately what I need, isn't a good detox followed by a behavior modification. What I need ultimately isn't, you know, you know strategic intervention during my worst episodes. All that's good and, and, and great and, and necessary at times, but ultimately what I need is to be saved from my sins. The Father shows me, the beloved of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit set me apart for meaningful grace, grace that matters because of who I am and who God is. And every time I encounter this grace and it rushes upon me again and afresh in the gospel, it's like I see myself and I'm there, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Kill, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Have you been found? Have you been clothed? Is the good news good news for you? Because that's my story. I mean, as the hymn says, that's my story, that's my song, and that's my story um, that faces down my doubts over this whole Jesus the Savior of the world thing that I've been taught since I was a child. You know, I used to think that uh, doubt was something I needed to be delivered from. I know better now. I don't need to be delivered from questions over our faith or even from this skeptical age that we live in. What I need is to wake up each day as a fresh recipient of the gospel. That's why I'm Christian. Jesus is just that good. He's holding on to me with cords of love. And then faith rushes in again, and I firmly believe in the truth that Paul's talking about in verse 13. And I love where Paul goes next in this passage um, because there's a body of truth that we believe and there's a body of sacred writings that we, are, that we hold to as, as a people that form us and shape us as a people for God. So we look, let's look at verse 15 together. Sorry, so Paul says, So then, brothers... Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. Um, 
So, in this verse, Paul says to the, to the church at Thessalonica, hold to these things, hold to these traditions. Um, and so these, what are these? These are the apostolic traditions by which the apostles went and established the earliest Christian communities. Um, and we have a record of, uh, of this apostolic tradition recorded for us in something called the New Testament. <laughs> we have many of their letters, right? Um, and we have these authoritative teachings of the life of Christ uh, called the four Gospels, two of which were written by apostles. And Mark uh, was an associate of Peter, through which he got his gospel. And Luke went to the eyewitnesses, he says in chapter 1, and was a close associate of the apostle Paul. And then the rest of the New Testament are the letters uh, and teachings of the apostles. So we have this, this pres- preservation of the apostolic traditions called the New Testament. And then what was the Bible of the apostles in the ancient church? Do you know? Yeah, it was the Old Testament. So I, I, in many ways, I see this verse as a call to hold on to the scriptures, to stand firm in these sacred writings. Uh, I recently read a, um, a story about a guy who, a man who was a lifelong reader of scripture. And one day he said to himself, my life hasn't turned out the way the Bible said it would. So right then and there, he decided, quote, in his own words, to make my life my authority instead of the Bible. And there's something about that decision that I totally get. Guys, I've, I've been reading the Bible as long as I can possibly remember. Uh, my parents led us in family devotions as a kid, and I loved them. Like, I loved family devotions. Um, and I heard the Bible preached faithfully by Pastor Bart growing up in this church. I've studied it academically. I've engaged it devotionally and contemplatively. And it seems like after all this Bible reading and all this Bible hearing, I should be different by now. Can anyone relate? I should be somebody else. To which I feel like God subtly says, well, Gabriel, who else are you supposed to be? That's not what I mean, God. I mean that I should be better. Oh, so you think that I revealed myself to those who wrote the Bible so that you could become the best version of yourself. Is that why you think I gave you the Bible? Well, yeah, God. It's exactly how I approach the Bible. I want the Bible to turn me into Gabriel on steroids. So what, that's, that's, isn't that what this whole Bible reading thing's about? Um, on, on Thursday mornings right now, there's an E3 group um, that meets at my house, and uh, we're, we fellowship um, with some, some, some guys in the church over coffee and bagels, and, and we'll pray for someone, and then we are reading a Eugene Peterson book. Eugene Peterson's my favorite author. I love Eugene Peterson. And uh, reading a book by him called Christ plays in 10,000 places. And um, there's another book that Peterson wrote um, called Eat This Book. And it's basically about um, how we approach the Bible as a spiritual text that shapes us and forms us as a people for God. Um, And in that book, Peterson says this. The Bible uh, is a text that reveals the sovereign God in being and action, meaning it reveals God's nature and God's activity. It does not flatter us. It does not seek to please us. We enter this text to meet God as he reveals himself, not to look for truth or history or morals that we can use for ourselves, 
We do not read the Bible in order to find out how to get God into our lives, get him to participate in our lives. That's getting it backward. And I share this, this quote with you for, for two reasons. First, as a shameless plug for my E3 group. Thursday morning, guys, come on out. It's going to be awesome. I'm just kidding. Um, I love the way Peterson reframes our approach and our expectation of what the Bible is and what it does in me. I love this. Um, because if you come to the Bible asking questions like, does the Bible work? Will the Bible fix me? You're done before you start. I'm so serious. Instead, we need to come to the Bible with questions like, how has God revealed himself in these inspired pages? My opinion, that's the most important question. And some others are, what is God up to in the world? What is the ongoing story of redemption that I've been brought into by the Spirit? How do these words shape the way I view myself and others in the world around me? What does it look like? And I'll say this, and finally, we don't begin here, but we got to get to this question too. What does it look like to be the hands and feet of Jesus? Um, you know, the most important question is not, do you read the Bible? Guys, Pharisees, good evangelicals, and skeptics read the Bible. The question is, do you allow the Bible to read you? Is the Bible under your microscope, or are you under its? Do you scrutinize the Bible, or do you allow the Holy Spirit through the Scripture to scrutinize you? Because there's something about this Jesus recorded for us in the apostolic traditions known as the New Testament. There's something about the way the Hebrew prophets were able to diagnose the systems of this world, that it is as true today as it was in the 6th century B.C. There's something about the prophets and the God they sing to that resonates with the God who put a robe around me and calls me his son. Can I just be honest with you guys? I'm trying to figure out how to be a Christian in this day and age. That's like my ambition right now. <laughs> like, uh, I'm not even kidding. What does it look like to even be a Christian in this society? Um, and with the, the culture wars and everything going on. But I can tell you this. I'm holding on to the traditions. I'm holding on to these sacred writings written by the Jewish people known as the Bible. Um, Peterson talks about uh, how the Bible invites us to participate with God in the world. And he says that we're accustomed to thinking that the world shown to us in Scripture is smaller than the world that we inhabit. And telltale phrases give us away all the time, Peterson says. Phrases like, make the Bible relevant to the world. As if the Bible is this key to fixing the world's problems. Or we hear phrases like, fitting the Bible into our lives. Or making room in our day for the Bible. As if the Bible is something that we can add to and squeeze into our busy, busy lives kind of thing. The Bible isn't the key to fixing the world. As if 
If we could only flood Congress with Bible-believing candidates, America would be a righteous nation. American History 101 disproves that idea. But neither is the Bible this supplement to be squeezed into our lives along with caffeine and fruit and vegetable supplements. What, what is the Bible? Here, here's, my, here's my theology of Scripture. Um, the Bible is a window. It's a window into who God is and what God has done and what God is doing. It's a window through which we accurately view God's vision of the world and of the world to come. And the Holy Spirit gave us this collection of sacred writings through the pens of Israel's chieftains and poets and kings and prophets and fishermen and a a Pharisee. And I love the complexity of the voices. And I love the presence of the Spirit's voice in and through them all. You know, this letter, 2 Thessalonians, as small as, as, small as it is, it, it's, Paul wrote it to uh, this church, and in many ways it finds every generation of Christians in much the same place it found its original audience some 2,000 years ago. And that we are a people waiting for the return of Christ, chosen by the Father, loved by Jesus, set apart by the Holy Spirit. A people who believe in the truth, the gospel. People who hold fast to the scriptures, stand firm in the scriptures. That's who we are. Interestingly, the the other theme in this letter uh, is basically Paul encouraging the Christians to do good works to other people and to work hard to provide a living for your own household. In chapter 3, he says that idleness isn't in accord with this apostolic tradition. So as we wait for, for the return of Christ, we are a people who are chosen by the Father. It's no small statement, y'all. Loved by Jesus. Set apart by the Holy Spirit. So live in the gospel. Hold on to the scriptures. Do good to others. And work hard until Christ returns. Today we're going to come to the table of the Lord together. And the Apostle Paul says that as often as you do this, you remember the Lord's death until he returns. And so with that, we're going to move into a time of communion.